Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. In this episode, I Zoomed with my guest, Kim, based out of Italy, so you'll hear about 90 seconds of my lousy audio skills. As we say in the military, carry on and stay tuned. Today, I'm joined by retired Air Force Senior Master Sergeant Kim Hang. Kim, thanks for making time for me all the way from Italy. Oh, thank you, Melissa. Kim and I have known each other for a long time. We met back in the 90s. We'll just say, we'll just put that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, newly fresh into the Air Force. Um, So I just want to start off with where you're from originally, why you joined the Air Force, and what your career field was. Okay. Um, Well, I'm originally from Southern California, uh, Westminster, California. Um, where I did not know anybody who joined the military personally. You know, it wasn't, uh, we weren't near any military installations. I didn't know anybody who joined the military after high school. But I remember uh, when I was about 13, I babysat for this couple. And uh, like a recruiting commercial came on one day. And he said, Kim, if you ever join the military, only consider joining the Air Force because they're the best service branch to go into. And it must have stuck. Because like 10, 12 years later, um, I met a a new friend and she was on the delayed entry program. And she told me how excited she was about going into Air Force Intel. And it just clicked. I just remembered that conversation I had when I was 13 years old. And so I said, I'm going to do it too, because I was working for um, a, a drug retail store and I was tired of planning my Christmas sales in, in at around thanks uh, around Valentine's Day. And um, I love a man in uniform. Always have, always <laughs> will. And so I went and sought out an Air Force recruiter. And they were actually difficult to find. There were two near me, one near my mom and one near my house. Neither of those Air Force recruiters were in for weeks every time I went by. And it was actually the Army said, Hey, hey, come on! Won't you? We give better education benefits, and we have a better GI Bill. And the Army actually took me down and issued and um, had me take the ASVAB. And I kept telling them, "I'm not joining the Army, you guys. I am not doing it. I'm only coming in the Air Force." I, as much as they tried to entice me, I enlisted in the Air Force, and I, I was an assistant manager of, a, of that drugstore. And my regional manager said it was the best joke he'd ever heard when I told him that I was giving my two weeks notice to come in the military. And he thought, that's a good one. That's the best one I've heard. I said, no, really, I'm serious, Al. I'm going in the Air Force. And I came in specifically to be a linguist. Um, So I actually had to take the D-Lab, the Defense Language Aptitude Battery, but I only did that once I found an Air Force recruiter. And then he drove me up to LA to take the D-Lab. And I signed on the dotted line. On Valentine's Day, as a matter of fact. And I came in on Mother's Day. Uh, what did your mom yeah. think? She was excited, heartbroken, um, you know, a mix of things. It was right at the beginning of the Gulf War in 1991. Mm-hmm. So she was like, oh, my God, I, you know, I hope nothing. I don't want you to go to the war. I don't want anything to happen to you. And I said, Mom, it's the Air Force. With the limited knowledge that I knew about the Air Force, I said, I will be in the rear with the gear in the air-conditioned tent. Um, don't worry about me. Uh, and as a matter of fact, my first deployment was here to 
to, to Italy. That was my wartime effort. My first wartime effort was uh, living in a hotel here at, at the same place where I'm living now, practically. What I like to remind people about is uh, when you deploy, it's not always to a Middle East location or somewhere mm -hmm. remote that you can deploy right. to in Italy, Germany, Japan. Tampa, Florida. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, when we were prepping for the initial invasion of Iraq, I knew a dental tech who had orders to deploy to Florida because they could identify bodies through dental records if needed. And I can understand your mom's concern because during the Gulf War, our information was limited because the internet wasn't around. Uh, what I like about your enlistment story is that you didn't go in right after high school. I did not. I was 25 years old when I joined. And so I was considerably older. I wasn't the oldest one, but I was very worried. But it was perfect because I immediately knew what the whole goal was. I was like, oh, you guys are just trying to get us to work as a team. They're going to break us down and break down our individual balls and build us up as a team because we're going to fight like a team and we're going to work as a team. Getting thrown into that environment can be very stressful. And there were there were a number of single moms who were going through basic training at the time. And just getting thrown into that stress and then being separated from your family. And again, at a time when it wasn't the internet and you got like one phone call, maybe two right. the entire time. And then... You joined during the wartime situation, and how long were you deployed to Italy for? Five months. That didn't happen until 1994, so I was in three years by then, and um, was kind of begging, you know, hey, I would love to go, uh, you know, deploy somewhere, and uh, as it ended up being, it ended up being here in Italy. And, what part uh, of Italy? Aviano. Okay. Now, so... It was my first deployment. It was it, this Aviano, Italy has been my last assignment. And how long were you in, in total? 23 years. Active duty? Yes. Uh, because I, it, it just, after you get over that 10 years, then it becomes harder to think about separating. I thought I would just stay in as, as long as it was still fun and I was still traveling. I had six deployments, seven assignments. Um, of course, I was in the Air Force band with you, so we got that. Uh, world tour basically out of it um, and uh, I, I finished a couple of degrees I made the, the most tremendous friends that are like family mm -hmm. and I'm so thankful for that and now I'm serving as a civilian for the Air Force I'm doing almost the exact same job what was your career field and what was the ratio of women to men I would say there were about 50 50 men women ratio, female to male ratio. I was a uh, uh, human resources. I actually started off in personnel systems for my first 10 years. So I got to learn like Unix programming and I uh, learned a lot of cool things about computers and endpoints and, and then they, out, they outsourced us. So my job went to contractors and then I became just straight HR, human resources, because it was an easy seg way into that career field. Um, and I really enjoyed it. It was extremely challenging. Uh, you have, you know, a set of instructions, but then you also have new instructions. And as things come out, they update them so quickly that you can barely keep up. And then you've got your clients who are coming for your assistance. And then your other clients are the commanders and the first sergeants and all the units that are also your customers. It was crazy. 
And uh, underappreciated, it's one of the least appreciated career fields in the military, I think, anybody who works HR. Um, because they all, if you do one thing wrong on somebody's record, you're always going to be remembered for that one mistake and not all the millions of good things that you do for, their, for their, a person's record. Then I uh, took all that experience and put it on my resume and got a job the next month after I retired. So here I am now going on 30 years of military service. That's what I'm talking about. I'm so proud of you. You parlayed your military experience into your civilian government position. So do you have the opportunity to work one-on-one with military spouses and family members? I do, and I'm so thankful for that. I get to see all the new people that arrive, the new spouses, people that are new to the base, and also, more importantly, new airmen. Mm -hmm. where this is their first duty assignment. And so I get to brief every single class of new airmen. And it's really exciting because I can give them the benefit of my experience. And I also tell them that I have an open door policy. So if they're afraid to talk to things, talk about military things or personal things with their supervision or their NCO, um, and they don't know where to go, or they want to learn about retraining, or they want to talk about anything under the sun, how it is to be a woman in the military, um, I tell them they can come see me. And do they take so, you on that? Some do, some do. Some I call them up because I say, hey, listen, something's wrong with your record and I, I'm going to help you fix it. And I want to teach you um, how to ensure that these documents are always correct. Um, because, you know, we're doing more with less now. So we have less personnel, but we're still doing all of our taskings, all of our wartime commitments, all of the response to COVID, which is all is so new for all of the military branches. So a lot of NCOs don't have that time to take for their airmen on that one-on-one that we used to get when we were airmen back in the 90s. So I'm, I'm thankful that I'm able to help them out. And it's kind of in the same capacity that I was when I was wearing uniform. When you first started out in your career field, were there many women in your chain of command? Um, you know, not in the beginning. I remember the first time I ever saw a female colonel, mm-hmm. uh, and it really, I was passing her on a sidewalk, and I stopped to salute her, and I was like, and I remarked, ma'am, you're the first colonel I've ever seen in my Air Force career, and she was like, no way. There were some, but most of my mentors, I have to say, when I look back, were men. It, it was, um, you know, we still, so this is my big push now, because now we have this big push for diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and my big harbinger is that we still don't have enough women in leadership roles. And we have over 20 squadrons um, at this base and only one female commander. Mm-hmm. We have over 27 first sergeants, or, you know, the people that are charged to help airmen when they have problems or personal problems, and only five are female. So that to me still is indicative that the Air Force still has a long way to go. We finally just, um, they just announced that they selected the first female ever to be the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. So that's the highest enlisted person in the Air Force. And we're going to get our first female. The Air Force has been around for 73 years. And we are just now getting our first female enlisted chief master sergeant. It's way overdue. I'm happy to see it, but I think we still have a ways to go to put women in those leadership roles. And I think that will also lend itself to possibly helping us get over the situation where there's this still high amount of sexual assault and rapes. There's even, you know, still a high amount of suicides. If you've been reading in the military, our, our suicide rate is up. And I think women just lend themselves better to be natural leaders and nurturers. And I still think you need that in the military. Yeah, I agree. I also think the image of being strong and taking on the world doesn't leave space for vulnerability or asking for help, at least when I was in, especially around 2002 when we were prepping for the initial invasion in Iraq. 
I think there was a stigma in seeking out mental health services because it could potentially prohibit you from promotion or duty assignments. And I, I remember you were on the hook too. Like you couldn't go anywhere or do anything because you were on the hook to deploy. I was. Yeah. In 2003, I had top secret orders to Baghdad City, which is what they called it at the time. But we're now in 2020 and we've been at war all that time. And humans have had multiple deployments, and in the early years, often back-to-back, or their orders were extended, so they thought they were only going for 90 days, and it just kept getting pushed, like 180, 365, indefinitely. I can understand why suicide rates are high. It's a real problem. So for you to say you have an open-door policy and you're a veteran, it's an invaluable asset to your position. I hope so. I hope it. Um, and I, I, my old, um, some of my old troops are here. Some of my old airmen, or that I've crossed paths with before. So they've definitely, you know, come in and said, you know, just can you help me on my resume? Can you help me on this special duty application? Not so much of life things, but just to know that I'm still serving and helping these airmen. You know, I really enjoy that. But I think women have it so much harder than men in the military when there's a family involved and when there's children involved, because we want to be that primary caregiver. We want to have a good harmonious family life. We want to be able to cook nutritious meals for our family. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet we also need to balance that out with the airmen that we are in charge of and responsible for. So when I was a senior NCO and I was married and had a, a almost teenager at home, that's when I felt the most stress in my life because I was in charge of a group of people at work and I felt like I was in charge of my home environment. And that was probably the craziest time of my life where I didn't know how I was going to keep it all together. And, and uh, it was a struggle. It really was a struggle. And I wrote a letter to the Air Force Times about it and they actually published it. And um, I got a lot of emails from women who they said it resonated with them because uh, they're experiencing the same thing. And my my husband was uh, military and he didn't have that level of responsibility yet in his career. And I still felt like I was the one that should do the grocery shopping. And I'm, I was the one that should have been cooking. And, and, you know, looking back, you think, well, it wasn't maybe me. He could have taken on more responsibilities. But um, at the time, you know, you have that drive to be a good mother and a good provider and also a good NCO. And that was, I really struggled in my life with that. Um, And I think a, a lot of women struggle with that motherhood and balancing that and being a person who's in charge for the care and feeding of your airmen and their welfare. Sure. I mean, I wasn't married and I didn't have a family, but when everyone was gearing up to deploy, many of them were single parents. Or even if they do deploy and say if they are married and then, you know, you still stress about your husband being the primary caregiver, you know, the full-time cook, cleaner, laundry, homework assistant, all that. You have to rely on if you're a single parent, you have to rely on a parent or somebody else to take care of your children or child while you're gone for however long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the internet's been such a game changer with all that, right? Social media and wi- Wi-Fi and internet has helped people so much to make it work. And then we have, I work for my agency. We help do programming to keep those families connected and also do things for the families that are left behind. So we have a monthly deployment dinner for all the parents and children that have a deployed member downrange. We have Christmas dinners. We do all the holiday things. And then we throw big parties when they come back. So we bring like the bouncy castle and food out to the flight line and put it up in a 
hangar and have music and a DJ. And then everybody gets to greet their, you know, redeploying a warrior when they're returning from downrange. So I get to see that part of it. And then we have, instead of just also mental health now, the Air Force and the military has instituted a, a program with mental health counselors and they're called MFLEX, Military Family Life Counselors, where you can meet with them and they don't even write down your name. They don't have any access to your medical records. They're not affiliated with the military. They're contractors. And they're at every installation, uh, even in the other services. Sometimes they are embedded with a unit. If you're like a special operations unit that deploys a lot, they'll have an MFLAC embedded with them. So they have their own counselor. And they're usually with a a base for six months at a time. And then they rotate out and get replaced by somebody else so that there's another fresh perspective that somebody you can talk to. That's wonderful. How long has that program been around? For about 10 years now. Okay. Yeah, military family life counselors, they're all licensed counselors with different backgrounds. You know, some are child psychologists. We have them embedded with the schools. We have them embedded with the high school. Mm-hmm. Then we have one embedded with us who can see adults or couples. So it's kind of like that. it's somebody who can often you know, listen to you and your spouse if you're having problems or communication issues. Then we have some that see can see teens and adults, so family counseling. But it does not get entered into your records whatsoever. Wow programs have really evolved since 2003. It's nice to have that anonymity too. I mean, we're airmen, soldiers, seamen, marines, but we're humans. And And there's feelings and emotions. You still have that human element that's always going to surprise you. So no matter how much, how many times you've done your job, you're still going to have those troops that are going to bring a human element into a situation. I guess just responding to that is still, it's still difficult. You know, we don't train people to deal with personal problems. We train you to do your job. We train you how to deploy. We train you how to give self-aid and buddy care. We'll train you to save somebody's life, to give CPR. But you still don't get the training on how to deal with other people's problems Mm. or emotions. And I think that is still the challenge for a lot of people. Like, how do I deal with this difficult airman? Or how do I deal with this difficult commander? How do I deal with this difficult spouse? It's always new when you're working with that human element. Right. And it's not like you're working with an aircraft, uh, you know, oh, this aircraft is the same. You know, we have the aircraft in our arsenal, in our inventory that are as old as I am. And um, those don't ever change. It's this job when you're dealing with that human element. It's always a surprise. It's always changing. And, and I always hear that. How do I deal with my difficult boss? How do I deal with the situation where this airman has uh, been put on restricted duty because she's pregnant? Well, then let her be on restricted duty. Which translates to the outside. That's always going to be in any career field, in any profession, Mm -hmm. dealing with people and the complications that come along with people and personalities and situations, expectations. That's pretty universal. And and it's all shifted now due to COVID. mm -hmm. Expectations, standards, things that you knew were the norm before. Even the military has had to shift and realign itself with the new COVID response. Mm. How, how do we do our jobs now under social distancing, masking? How do you do an ID card for somebody when you're not supposed to be within you know, three meters of them? How do you take someone's ID card picture when they're wearing a mask? Uh. All of these new situations that we never thought about. You know, budgeting now for protective gear, sanitization standards, things that, you know, we never had a hand sanitizing station when you walked in our building and now there is one. Well, you bring up a good point. Being in Italy during COVID, how has that affected PCSing? 
Well, of course, everybody got frozen in place. So right. we had people that were getting ready to leave that had already shipped their cars or, you know, their vehicles, their household goods. They were living out of their suitcases and then they were stuck here. And conversely, on the other end, we had people who were also coming here and stuck. The only people that I heard that wanted to change their orders had a family member that to come, you know, that did not want to come here. They had a family member who was at high risk mm. for COVID, and they were the ones that asked for their um, assignments to be canceled, which I think in most cases, the Air Force accommodated those requests. It was probably about a good month, six weeks, where nobody transitioned in or out of the base. So those were the first people that finally got an exception to leave. And, and of course, they had to quarantine when they got to the States or their destination. And then conversely, the same people uh, in the States that were waiting to move here, they finally got the approval to move here. And then we quarantined them when they got here for 14 days. In fact, anybody arriving right now has to quarantine in their hotel room for 14 days. Oh, wow. So they're in a holding pattern until they can sign into base? They um, stay in their lodging. We have their sponsor and their squadron deliver them food, groceries, come walk their dogs. You know, because they can interact, but they have to mask up and they can say, okay, take my dog for a walk. It's a really unusual, unusual time because now we're a green zone and the States isn't. Right. So... So circling back on your career, is there a specific highlight or memory that stands out? You know, I, for a time, I used to say that I was the Air Force poster child for resiliency because the marriage I talked about earlier, that didn't work out. So we separated and divorced at the same time that my mom was diagnosed with cancer and I just got selected to E8 and my back died and you know, went out on me and I had to have emergency back surgery. And then I found out that they were going to medically board me and possibly medically kick me, you know, kick me out. It all happened within a short amount of time. So I think getting through that challenge, those challenges, um, my mom getting sick, my mom's uh, cancer treatment, dealing with my marriage and subsequent divorce, meeting the medical board and getting the surgery and being able to stay in after that, you know, fight, my commander went to bat for me. My leadership went to bat for me and said that I could still do my duties, even with a bad back. It was a really challenging time. I had to go to a professional military education on the top of that because, of, you know, I got selected to a higher grade. And all that just happened. And the fact that I survived it, I think that's probably my biggest accomplishment. <laughs> sure. And that, that's just a string of things. You know, people have bad things happen to them all the time. And I... I've told a couple, I've shared a couple of people, you know, that story, like when they're going through a string of things and I'm like, listen, I've been there. You know, so many people have been there. If you can just hold on and think that later on, some of this, you may laugh about, maybe you may not laugh about it so much, but you will survive it. Mm -hmm. and, and then right after I was medically boarded and they returned me to full duty, I had to deploy. And you think, what well, deploy and you have a, a medical condition. They were supposed to go to Afghanistan, but I couldn't wear all that heavy gear. So they ended up sending me to Kuwait. So that was my last deployment. And how long were you there? I was only there two months because my mom, my mom's cancer progressed and became terminal. And the Air Force took such great care of me. They had me on a plane that night. I found out in the morning that my mom was really sick and was in the hospital, that she was terminal. And the Air Force, I was in Kuwait, and they put me on a plane all the way home to California. And I was there the next, I was there 40 hours later. But I mean, they shipped all my stuff to me um, when I got back to my base, my home base. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear something like that, that the military is compassionate in that way, mm -hmm. can be 
compassionate in that way. And not all people, I mean, not all missions can let somebody go like that. So I was thankful that mine was. In fact, we were drawing down. So I was going to have to cut some people from my team early anyway. And as it was, I ended up being cut. And and that was fine with me because I treasured that time with my mom. And then I just went back to my home station. And then I went on leave every six weeks to go home and visit my mom until she passed. So I was so, so thankful for that time. And, and, you know, that the military allowed me to spend that time with my mom before she passed away. And then I had this assignment waiting here to to Italy. They let me postpone. They gave me a a 30-day extension so that I could go back and see my mom one more time. And then she passed away right before I came to Italy. And I could have asked to get that assignment turned off, but my mom convinced me otherwise. She knew I was thankful that um, I had all that extra time. And then I ended up here and I retired here and I became a civilian here in state. So what advice would you have for a young lady that might come up to you today and say, hey, I'm thinking of joining the Air Force or I'm thinking of joining the military. Would you encourage her in this in this environment we're in now? Or um, I would encourage her to come in. I would encourage her to have an open mind, to embrace it, and to be prepared to have it become a way of life. It's not just a job. It's, it becomes a way of life. Mm-hmm. And if they're willing to, you know, have their whole world turned upside down from everything they've known, if they've never been involved with the military, you know, because we have our own vernacular, we have our own vocabulary, our own acronyms for everything. If they're ready for the challenge of serving, you know, their country, it's it's so much bigger than an individual, you know, it's so much bigger than the, the one individual person, you know, I, and, but I don't think they get to see that. Uh, until later in their career. And I think, um, you know, people say, oh, what a sacrifice, you know, what a sacrifice to have served in the military. To a degree, somewhat it is, but I think it wasn't until my 19th year in the Air Force that my mom put it in perspective for me. She said, Kimberly, I'm so proud of everything you've done and everything you've accomplished, but I feel like I have missed out on the last 19 years of having you in my life day to day. Mm. And it made me realize that the sacrifice of military service wasn't born by me. It was born by my mom and my loved ones and my family that I didn't get to see on a day-to-day basis. That's what made me look at it in a whole new perspective. And I'm the airman I, I um, brief now, I tell them, I said, call your mom, call your dad, call your family because they're sacrificing without you. You're sacrificing a little of your freedoms to be in the military, but they're sacrificing so much more and the worry about you. That's a very good point. I never thought of it that way. Oh, well, Kim, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story. Thank you. And thank you for listening. If you're a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option 1, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.